pray with me, please? Father, may those words be genuine. May they be real. May they be true from our hearts. That you are our satisfaction. You are our joy. You are our hope. It's you and it's you alone. As a deer pants after the water, so my soul longs for you. Meet with us this morning. Speak to us this morning. Be for us who we need you so desperately to be. Our all in all. Our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our King, our Shepherd. Our life. So now as we open your word together and see Jesus in all of his grace and in all of his glory, may you open our eyes to who he is, open our hearts, and may we leave this place this morning thinking higher thoughts of Jesus and having fallen deeper in love with Jesus. And the only way that can happen is if your spirit works in our midst. So please, for your glory, and for the good of your people. Work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, so much for leading us this morning. I invite you to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 this morning. And I know I say what I'm about to say every week. If you don't have a Bible with you, We have a Bible for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible located in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1011 in the church Bible. It is so, so important that you see for yourselves, as you're hearing for yourselves, the words of our God. What we have, listen, what we have in this book is a treasure. Amen? What we have in this book is a treasure. These are the words of our God. The Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the New Testament, the disciples at one point turn to Jesus and say, we can't leave you. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and these are the words of eternal life. So it's so vital and important that you see for yourself what God has said because this church will be built not upon what this pastor says but only upon what our God has said and that's the key I want to say a special thank you to you as a church family Uh, Joanne and I appreciate you very much for giving us the opportunity just about a week and a half ago to get out of town uh, to get out of Dodge and to make our way to Galena for several days And Pastor Brandon, thank you for preaching last Sunday in my absence. Last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday, it was a first for many of us. Pastor Brandon literally preached the lights out. Because near the conclusion of his sermon, um, the lights did go out. Just to let you know what happened, we did have a small but contained fire in a transformer outside of our facility. It was ComEd's transformer, and nobody was in any danger at any point last Sunday, although we did evacuate the building quite quickly. You were to be commended for that. 
Um, but uh, ComEd came out within 20 minutes, and after chopping down two of our trees, they were able to replace that transformer and have everything back up and running by 10.30 p.m. last Sunday evening, and the facility is now safe. We're fine this morning. Nobody get up and walk out because you think you're in danger. So thank you, Pastor Brandon, for preaching the lights out last Sunday. I miss preaching to you when I'm not up here. It's a a special privilege. It's an honor, and I want you to know I appreciate that privilege that you have given me to open God's Word for you, and especially as we're turning the home stretch here in Mark's Gospel. What we see occurring now, as Jesus has been living His life on purpose, is the culmination of that purpose beginning to take shape in Mark chapter 14, the home stretch for Jesus. And I think as the God-man, Jesus must feel as though the cross is coming at him with lightning blazing fast speed. This is why he has come. This has been the plan from the beginning. And now that Jesus can see that cross coming so quickly, the purpose for which he has come. He will accomplish. He will do. Every step he has taken thus far in his ministry has led him to this point in Mark chapter 14 as the cross is coming now into focus so clearly for Jesus. Let's read the text. Jesus living his life on purpose, finishing his life on purpose, beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 14. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, he, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that where, I, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room that's furnished and ready. There, prepare the Passover meal for us. And the disciples set out, and they went to the city that is into Jerusalem, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, that's Jesus, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is the sobering word of our God. So with school now back in session, summer is officially over and in the rearview mirror. And just a few days ago, Joanna and I were talking about all the things that we had planned to do throughout this past summer. Our son's wedding and the trip to Alabama and Mississippi, a quick day trip to Kenosha and to our favorite restaurant, Frank's Diner in Kenosha. 
A getaway to Galena. We accomplished that just a week or so ago. So far, so good in our conversation. What we had planned to do, we had done, we checked all those boxes. But then, then we began talking about all the stuff we wanted to do and planned to do, but didn't do. Like a trip to the Wisconsin State Fair. A trip to Lake Geneva. A trip to my parents' home in Iowa. And then there's all the projects we had planned, like putting the finishing touches on our kitchen update and redecorating the main bedroom and getting the new gas grill up and running, the one Joanna surprised me with last Christmas. So many plans left undone, so many boxes unchecked. I have good news for you this morning. Jesus has no plans undone and no boxes unchecked. He has never failed to execute God's plan, ever. There's no, oops, if only I had more time. There's no, if only I had seen that coming. There's no, if only I had been better prepared. If only. Listen, with Jesus, there are no if onlys. Because the big idea of this text in Mark 14, is that God always executes His perfect plans perfectly, without exception. God never leaves His plans undone, His promises unfulfilled, or His purposes unfinished, ever. And that's why He's always telling us, reminding us, convincing us that everything He says He will do, He will do. Here's just a smattering of verses where God says that. Isaiah 46, verse 11, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Ezekiel 17, verse 24, I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Ezekiel 24, verse 14, I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. Ezekiel 37, verse 14, you know You shall know that I am the Lord. Why? Because I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. You believe that? Where are you tempted to doubt that God really will make good on His Word and execute all His plans for you? Is it that you as His child, that He's He really does have you, that He really is for you, that there really is nothing that can separate you from His love. There is no problem, no person, no possibility that will ever stand in the way of God completing His work in you. Are you doubting that? Where are you doubting that He will fulfill all His promises to you, that He really is with you personally and powerfully and permanently? Where is that this morning? Where God has said it and you're doubting that He will do it. You see, God has given us His Word so that when he, even when it doesn't look like it or feel like it, He's making good on it because as we discover in this scene, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is in control. It is clear as we make our way through this scene in Mark 14 that Jesus doesn't just know what's coming. He's in control of all that's coming. The people. 
the places, the events, the timing, all of it planned so meticulously and executed so precisely. Now, as we come to this text, it would be helpful for us to remember that Jesus has already told his disciples three different times, not just that he's going to die, but how he's going to die and where he's going to die. And the final time he shares that with his disciples is Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, where he says this, Guys, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So that's the plan. And now when we arrive in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, it's all taking shape right before our eyes. It's all playing out just as Jesus said. It begins right here. Near Jerusalem, early on Thursday before Jesus will die on Friday. And that's when the disciples approach Jesus to ask this question. Early on Thursday, they're probably in Bethany still, where they've spent the night, and they ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, it's the most wonderful time of the year, accompanied by the most important meal of the year. So where will you have us to go and to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, because most of us in this room are probably not ethnic Jews, it would probably help us out this morning a bit to do a bit of a Passover primer. Because Passover for the Jews isn't just a holiday, it's the holiday, right? It's like our Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter all rolled into one. And Passover kicks off with a meal that points back to when the Jews were slaves where? In Egypt. Back to when during that tenth plague, God spared the lives of the firstborn in every home that sacrificed a lamb and then took that blood and smeared it on the doorposts. And when the death angel passes through the land of Egypt and he sees the lamb's blood smeared on the doorposts, he passes over, passes over that household. The firstborn in that household lives, but only because the lamb died. You see it. We're going to talk more about that next Sunday. You see, God wanted his people to remember that he had rescued them back in Egypt. He had redeemed them in Egypt. He had saved them and spared them from Egypt. And so he institutes the Passover meal that was to be observed by every Jew every year within the city gates of Jerusalem, which is why the disciples are asking Jesus, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? That's the big question because they, remember, they are guests in town. They are, not, they are not residents of Jerusalem. They're from up north in Galilee. And remember that there are hundreds of thousands of Jews crammed now into Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the disciples need a private room where they can celebrate Passover together. Now, We need to remember at this point what has just gone down in the text, in the verses previous to verse 12. Remember what's happened. 
Remember that we discover in verses 10 and 11 of Mark chapter 14 that there is a mole in this group of disciples. That Judas Iscariot has now agreed to sell Jesus out and is waiting for the perfect opportunity to betray Jesus. And so when Jesus is asked this question by the disciples, and I personally wonder, was it Judas Iscariot himself who asked this question? You know why? Because he's going to be all ears when it comes to the answer to this question. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to eat tonight? Where is it going to be? Where is the private room? That private room in Jerusalem would be the perfect place for Judas to betray Jesus. It would be after sundown. It would be during the Passover meal. So it would be the perfect time to betray Jesus. Remember, if you go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, the chief priests and the the scribes are already making plans to now pull off the death of Jesus. But their one concern is they don't want to cause a stir in town. And so after sundown in a private room is the place to do it, to betray Jesus, to arrest Jesus. Jesus would never see it coming, right? But there's something that Jesus knows that Judas doesn't know. It's that Judas is not in control of this scene Jesus is. He will not die on Judas's terms. He will die according to the Father's plan. Jesus cannot be arrested in the upper room. He still has so much to teach his disciples. He will give them one final lesson on serving when he kneels before them and washes their feet. He will teach them everything we read in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16 that will conclude with a very important lesson on prayer for these disciples as they leave the upper room and head to the Garden of Gethsemane where they will fall asleep while Jesus is praying. There's so much left to do. Even though Jesus' death is now less than 24 hours away. That's why Jesus cannot be betrayed or arrested in the upper room. And so Jesus, knowing that Judas is listening in on this conversation, Jesus goes all 007, James Bond, secret agent on the disciples here. Did you notice that? Look at it. He doesn't give the disciples a specific address. He doesn't say go to 220 Wagner Street in Adrian, Missouri, where I grew up. He doesn't give them an address where they can all rendezvous for the Last Supper. Instead, Luke chapter 22 tells us that Jesus actually pulls Peter and and John aside and gives them these instructions, just these two. Go into the city. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. There's no name. There's no meeting place that Jesus gives. And wherever he goes, follow him. And wherever he, whatever house he enters, say to the master of that house, no names here. The teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, let's just hit pause on this scene for a moment. You still with me? Up there in the balcony, you still with me? All right, over there in the balcony, you 12 people, you still with me? All right, everybody still with me? Can we keep going here? All right, for seven of you, I can. All right. Did you catch it? 
Did you catch here that Jesus doesn't want the disciples, when they come to the master of the house, Jesus doesn't want the disciples to identify Jesus by name. Jesus doesn't say, say to the master of that house, Jesus of Nazareth needs a guest room. Instead, they are to say what? The teacher needs his guest room. So it seems that whoever the master of that house is, whatever house that is in town, whatever water jug guy is walking through town at that moment, the master of that house must know Jesus and is willing to conceal the identity of Jesus. And remember, that's a big deal because we've already read earlier in our study of Mark, we went to John chapter 11, where we learned that the religious leaders have already put a price, a public price, on Jesus' head. There were probably wanted posters, you know, nailed up all over town. Everybody knows that Jesus is a wanted man. That's why he's being shrewd here. He's showing us that he's in complete control of the entire situation. Every person, every place, every event, every moment. Because Jesus says, listen, when you ask the master of my house, where my uh, master of the house, where my guest room is, he's going to show you a large upper room that's furnished and ready. It's ready. Now, don't fly right by that. I love that. Jesus is saying the room will have everything we need. It will be totally prepared for us. By the way, don't, don't you just love how God is always working ahead of us? Always preparing the way for us by providing everything we need before we even get to where he's leading us. The room, guys, that we're going to use this evening, the room that the master of the house is going to show you will already be furnished and ready. I love that. Now, this is where theologians love to debate whether this was all prearranged by Jesus or whether this was an in-the-moment kind of miracle of Jesus. Now, personally, I don't think that Jesus kind of slipped away secretly from the disciples last night and made his way into town and prearranged all this with Mr. Water Jug Guy and Mr. Master of the House Guy. I think it's an all-out miracle. I think it's Jesus executing the Father's plan in real time using real events in the lives of real people. But even if it were all prearranged, we have to remember that this happens, all of this occurs before there are cell phones, before there are smartwatches. By the way, you remember what life was like back then? You actually had to plan. You know, you had, you had to plan ahead of time. There was no calling at the last second. There was no, you know, GP, GPS tracking devices. None of that. I mean, there's, there's none of that guaranteeing that Peter and John show up at just the right place, at just the right time, to meet up with just the right guy who will lead them to just the right house. I mean, what if there are two or three guys carrying water jugs through town at this moment? What if Peter and John end up then at the wrong house following the wrong guy speaking to the wrong homeowner? Because then they'll have missed the Mr. Water Jug guy that Jesus wanted them to meet up with. 
Now, perhaps I'm overstating the case. But either way, I, none of us can deny the, the fact that God's handprints are all over this scene. Perfectly executing his sovereign plans and purposes so that in verse 16, when Peter and John make their way into town, they find everything just as Jesus had told them. Okay, so let's apply this to where we live. Right here, right now with us. Let's ask God in our lives to give us the ability to see the invisible hand of God working. Places, people, events, timing. Because our God and His invisible hand is just as much at work in our story as it is in this story. You see, God doesn't just compose a plan and then leave it up to chance or fate. He orchestrates circumstances. He directs people to be in just the right place at just the right time, all of them making their own choices, going where they want, when they want, doing what they want, yet all of it supernaturally fulfilling God's plans and purposes in your life with precise specificity. Which means... There are no chance meetings. No chance meetings with people. Only divine appointments. The person you're sitting next to on the plane, that new coworker who stops by your cubicle tomorrow morning, that new neighbor who's just moved in, that child who's had a bad dream and runs into your room for the third time that night. There's divine purpose to all of it. So trust him. Trust him, even when his hand is invisible, he's still working like his invisible hand is working in this scene just to secure a room to celebrate Passover. Trust him, he's working. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your career, in your church, young people in your school. When nothing significant seems to be happening, it's just normal everyday stuff like a Mr. Water Jug guy and a Mr. Homeowner. Still, God is working. He's always working. Sovereignly executing his plans for you. Plans that are rooted in his love for you. God is sovereign. It'll be his plan. And the good news is that his plan is for you as one of his people. He loves you. God who is sovereign and God who is love. You see, this scene in the upper room, when Jesus and the disciples arrive there, this entire scene is set against the backdrop of Jesus' love. You say, but I don't see Jesus' love right here in verses 17 through 21. You're right. Mark doesn't talk about it, but John does in his gospel. In John chapter 13, verse 1, this is how John sets up the upper room scene. Listen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the heart of Jesus. As he and the disciples take their place in the upper room, and perhaps we're thinking that this scene is going to look like Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Right now, um, 
I'm sorry to blow up your mental image of this scene, but Jesus and the disciples are not sitting on stools at the table. It's a low table, and so there would have been lots of cushions and pillows. Now, if you're, if you're a member of our household, in, in, in our house, there are lots of cushions and pillows. Every chair has a pillow. Every sofa has like four pillows. Every bed has like 12 pillows. Anybody else like that? <laughs> Ladies, if you want biblical proof text, the pillows are okay. Here you go. The upper room. All G- Jesus and the disciples, they're reclining on those pillows. They're, they're eating together. When suddenly Jesus locks eyes with his guys and rocks their world. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is a fake, a phony, a poser, a pretender. And although Jesus knows without a doubt that it is Judas Iscariot, Jesus does not pull Judas aside and say, listen, Judas, I'm I'm disappointed in you. I really expected more from you. I mean, I chose you to be my disciple, and this is the thanks I get? Thanks a lot, Judas. Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not do that. Why not? Let me give you two reasons this morning. Number one, Jesus is inviting the disciples to examine themselves individually, all of them. Jesus is inviting all the disciples to take a deep dive into their own hearts Why? Because the seed of betrayal is present in each of their hearts. None of them and none of us is above this. None of us is better than Judas Iscariot. I mean, in just a few hours when Jesus is arrested, all of the disciples will desert Jesus and they'll flee when Jesus is arrested. And then a few hours later, one of them will even deny knowing Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. And I think these guys understand that the seed of betrayal is present in each of their hearts. Because notice here, they begin to be sorrowful when Jesus says what he says. And one by one, they come to Jesus to ask Jesus, is it I? Am I the one who will betray you? I would imagine that all of us sitting in this room this morning have at one point in our lives experienced the pain, the sting of betrayal. Betrayal cuts so deep because it can only occur within the realm of relationship and friendship. Where trust isn't just broken, it's shattered Where love isn't just spurned, it's spat upon. Where our hearts aren't just hurt, they're trampled upon. We can feel the pain we hear in the voice of Julius Caesar when he says to his betrayer, Brutus, et tu, Brute. You as well, Brutus. Betrayal hurts, and we cannot pretend that it would be any different for Jesus in this scene that's wrapped in the love of Jesus. Because secondly, 
Jesus conceals the identity of Judas out of love for Judas. Instead of outing Judas here and blowing his cover, Jesus shows mercy to Judas. He's holding back from Judas what he deserves. He's giving Judas one final opportunity to repent. If Judas is going to choose hell over heaven, he's going to have to step over the love of Jesus to get there. Because notice that Jesus doesn't conceal Judas' identity once but twice. Because again in verse 20, Jesus says the betrayer is one of the twelve. It's one of you who is dipping bread into the dish with me. With me. You're with me. And what's scary is that when Jesus says this two different times, None of the disciples in that room know that it's Judas. None of them. None of them points a finger at Judas and says, you know, I've been on to you the whole time, Judas. I could see it in your eyes. I could hear it in your voice. You haven't fooled me at all. You're the man, Judas. You're the traitor. None of them. None of them identifies Judas as the traitor because none of them knows that Judas is the traitor. None of them knew the real Judas. And that's scary. It is, it is possible to so look the part and play the game as a follower of Jesus that you fool everyone into believing that you really are a follower of Jesus. I mean, you're here this morning, right? You're, you're, you're doing the right things. You're in the right place. You're with the right people. I mean, Matthew tells us in his gospel that, that Judas is sitting so close to Jesus in the upper room that when, when Judas asked Jesus, is it I? And Jesus answers, you have said so, Judas. No one else in the room hears that. No one. Because Judas is so close to Jesus, yet so far away from Jesus. And I think that at this moment, Judas thinks and believes that he could hit the brakes at any time that he could stop this just as quickly as it began. But he couldn't. He was in too deep. He had gone too far. He could not repent because John tells us that at this moment, Satan himself enters into Judas. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. Don't get that Judas is saying, no, Satan, no, Satan, no, no, no. Every step along the way, Judas has been opening the door to Satan so that in the end, the door is wide open and all Satan has to do is walk right in. Please listen. You may think that you can toy with sin, but in reality, sin is toying with you. You may think you've got your sin by the tail, but if you keep on stepping over the love of Jesus, there will come a point when you cannot repent and will not repent ever. How bad is that? 
How gut-wrenchingly awful is an eternity without Jesus? Here it is. It would have been better for the one stepping over the love of Jesus to have never been born. And so I plead with everyone in this room, please, 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 don't step over the love of Jesus. Instead, take shelter in the love of Jesus, who says in verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, as it has been written of Him. See the love of Jesus here in these words. Jesus' death was God's plan from the very beginning. That's why we read in the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that's why all the way through the Old Testament, God is setting the stage for this very night, using even the wicked actions of a sinful man named Judas Iscariot to bring about the redemption of his people. We actually read of this very night, hundreds of years before, in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Hundreds of years earlier, God said this very night in the upper room would happen. And right here before our eyes in Mark 14, it does happen according to God's plan. So Jesus will die, yes, but not as a victim of Judas, as the Son of God and as a substitute for us. That's why Isaiah 53, verse 3, says this. He was despised. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up, this was written of him. He's despised. We see that here now in the upper room with Judas. He'll be despised by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders, the Romans. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why? Here's the answer in verse 5. So that he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement that would bring us peace. And by his stripes we will be healed. Jesus dies according to God's plan as a substitute and a savior. The sinless one in the place of sinful ones. The holy one in the place of unholy ones. The the righteous one in the place of unrighteous ones. Will you take shelter in the love of Jesus? You see it here. It's Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Will you come to Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Right here, right now, right this morning. Come to Jesus.
Trust in Jesus. And when you do, when you turn from your sins and embrace Jesus as your Savior and King by faith alone, then there are three takeaways from this scene for you. Two things to know, one one thing to do. First, know this. Know that you are chosen by God. Know that your relationship with God is an on-purpose relationship. Listen carefully. Now, I really need you to stick with me because this, I'll tell you in just a minute. All right, so just listen carefully. The intentionality we see played out here in Jesus dying to secure our salvation translates into a divine intentionality in applying that salvation to you. You say, Pastor Ken, you lost me halfway through. All right, that is a, that's a really wordy way for me to put what I just put it. So let me, let me put it as simply as I can. Since Jesus died on purpose, you are saved on purpose. It's Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. In love, He predestined. He chose us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose, according to the plan of His will. So as a child of God, you didn't slip into God's family inadvertently or accidentally. You are chosen, so you belong. There's now intentionality written all over your relationship with God. So when you're struggling with the plan of God, remember that you were chosen by God, which is evidence that, number two, you are loved by God. You see, this scene in the upper room, the interaction between Jesus and Judas, This scene removes any question mark from his love for you and replaces it with an exclamation point. In this scene, Jesus is locking eyes with his betrayer. He's staring death in the face. But listen, he's not cowering. He's not running. He's not fearing. Instead, he's loving. It's what Jesus will say in this very room later on this night. John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus has done for you. It's what we sing in the old song. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky. Just God. You are loved by God. You've been chosen by God. So thirdly, trust the plan of God. One of the things I'm constantly reminding you of, one of the things I'm constantly saying to you is that our God has a track record, an unblemished track record. 
This book is full of real hard evidence that God is trustworthy, that what God has said, he will do. What God has planned, he will execute. What God has promised, he will fulfill. Because as Judas walks out of this upper room, his evil plan will not overthrow God's good plan. His evil plan will actually accomplish God's good plan. That doesn't make his evil good. It makes God, God. So as a child of God, there is no evil that anyone can do to you or say against you that will overthrow God's good plans for you. Because God is working in those things and through those things to work out those things to accomplish his good plans for you. So, As Psalm 37, verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him because He will bring it to pass. God really does execute His perfect plans perfectly. So love Him. Worship Him. Trust Him. Amen. Father, may You take Your Word by Your Spirit and apply it to the hearts of your people and to to my heart too. For those who have been stepping over the love of Jesus this morning, bring them to yourself in saving faith. Work on their hearts. Open their eyes. And may this morning they confess right where they are right now that Jesus is Lord. And may they believe in their hearts that you, the Father, have raised Jesus from the dead. May they come to Jesus. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may we understand by your grace that we've been chosen, that we are loved, and so we can trust you. Even when we can't see your hand working, we know that you are fulfilling and executing your good plans and purposes. For we see it in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.